Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we have with us Sabra Horn, the chief of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Innovation Hub at the Department of Homeland Security. Prior to her time at the DHS, she served at the National Security Agency as the Deputy Chief for Information Sharing and Collaboration, facilitating the sharing of the NSA's most highly classified intelligence. She was Senior Advisor to the NSA's Threat Operations Center Leadership. She was previously Director of Communications at the Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs and also served as the Chief of Staff at the ODNI in the stand-up of the National Maritime Intelligence Center. Prior to her government service, she had a storied career in academic publishing as the senior executive editor for the largest list of academic criminal justice publications at Wadsworth Publishing. She holds a master's degree in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a bachelor's in English from the College of Charleston. Sabra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Harpreet. It's great to be here. Before we jump into specific questions, it would be great if you could provide our viewers some insight into how you have progressed into your current position. You have a very impressive and a broad background. If you can tell us how you made your move into the government and subsequently ended up in your current role, uh, th that would be wonderful. That's great, Harpreet. Well, I... Um... It's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. I will say I uh, started my career in academic publishing and had an 18 year career um, doing what was really an incredible job. I got to travel the country and talk to academics and hear about their research. But um, I will say my life changed on 9-11 as did many other people. Uh, I decided then that I wanted to become part of the fight in helping to keep our nation safe. I didn't understand what that might look like. It took me a while to figure out how to be able to translate my skills into something that would work for government. And I made my way to the Harvard Kennedy School in order to get a master's in strategic management of national security. Um, I then moved to DC in 2005 to basically start my career in government. And I was lucky enough on day three to interact with um, Mary Margaret Graham, an amazing woman who was the first director of collection for the office of the director of national intelligence. And I was able to use my skill set and experience working open source um, across the 16 intelligence agencies, um, understanding how we gather information and who might need it. It just was very different. Um, I had worked with uh, professors getting information to students, and it's very different. Um, how they work within the intelligence community, but it's the same type of application. I would say I've, I've been very lucky in the last 15 years uh, within my government uh, career and have had the opportunity to be part of the ODNI stand up and to really focus on 9-11 and the report from Congress and ensuring that our country was safer after that time. I was able to be part of the National Security Agency, uh, just following the leaks of classified information by Edward Snowden, which had a devastating impact on uh, both the agency and our country. And I am really excited to be part of DHS and to be part of the CISA mission in ensuring that we keep our country safer 
um, through critical infrastructure and ensuring cyber and physical security threats are mitigated. So, so now you are charged with building and bringing to life uh, CISA's information hub. What do you see as some of the driving forces leading to innovation within DHS and have you encountered any obstacles? I would love to say not at all, <laughs> but as we know, that's not the reality in any job, is it? So um, I will say what is really interesting is watching what has taken place in the last several years with innovation across federal agencies. Um, we are in many ways, um, we all know that government sometimes lags our partners in the commercial sector and they have long had an eye on how important innovation is and how important innovation is to ensuring that pri private sector is really um, keeping uh, pace with technology as it's, as it's changed. The government I think has uh, come into that over the last several years and it is really remarkable to see there's almost, there's virtually no agency that you can go to that doesn't have some emphasis on innovation, whether it be specific mission focused um, operational divisions or whether it be a broader um, means to gather input from the workforce or whether it be very specific technologies that can help support mission support elements such as uh, the CIO, the CFO, or the human resources area. So it's been remarkable to see how much more mature the innovation space has become in government, but obviously there's much more that we need to do. I think we can also look to the fact that um, we know that government by definition is a much more deliberative space. Um, you want by necessity to ensure that there is the deliberation across the various agencies and across the different arms of government to ensure that we end up with the best overall um, policies or decisions or operational um, uh, responses. But oftentimes that comes in conflict with the mission driven need and the speed in which we need to deliver mission. And so we can look to some of our partners like DOD or some of the operational aspects of um, and agencies within DHS, such as um, FEMA who has to respond during emergencies um, to see that we do have the ability to pick up the pace and to do things quickly in a mission driven uh, environment. And I think we can see how that has really uh, taken place. I would say innovation in government comes down to several things, which is creating repeatable processes. What do we make happen in a way that everyone across the agency can employ those uh, mechanisms rather than doing heroic efforts or Hail Marys that are a once, uh, once in a lifetime, but never to be replicated. It's really about creating processes and procedures and ways of working so that everybody can be part of innovation. It's also looking at the strategic goals of the mission um, and the agency to ensure that innovation is really resonating with exactly what uh, the agency is trying to do overall, rather than going off onto its own and picking the next shiny object that should be brought to life. That's not really helping the agency overall. And finally, I think it really is about building a culture of innovation within the agency such that every single individual within the workforce feels responsibility for bringing innovation and um, 
finding within their own role how they might bring that innovation to life. So tell us, tell us about uh, Innovation Hub. What are you trying to achieve there? Great. Uh, first and foremost, we, um, as I just mentioned, we're trying to build a culture of innovation such that every CISA workforce member feels responsible and able to be part of an innovation process, regardless of what their role is. Um, you know, we, we have both mission as well as mission support uh, workforce members, and we want to make sure that each person is able to see how they might be able to look at the specific processes or policies or procedures that exist uh, to govern their job and how they might be able to make those more nimble, agile, rapid, easier, cheaper, faster, less painful, um, so that everybody feels empowered. Um, and we're creating a crowdsourcing uh, mechanism to enable capturing and then prioritizing the workforce ideas as well. We are really trying to focus on not just um, our mission uh, innovation efforts, that is primarily focused within our chief technology officer who's working very closely with our science and technology division within the broader DHS mechanism but we're really focused on the mission support aspects of what it is that we do, whether it be our financial um, operations or our IT operations, our human resources, security, things of that sort. There's so much that we can do to bring innovation to those important areas. Um, and I think that part often gets uh, left out of discussions because again, it's not, it's not the sexy thing, right? Oh, we wanna pick this bright and shiny object and, and employ it right away. Um, so I, I think there's some good work to be done there. And um, we're trying to, to take a look at that in a systematic fashion. And we have some good early wins that we're able to leverage. Um, I would say we're also trying to figure out how we can do uh, more with less. And I think technology can help enable that in so many ways. You know, I can think back to, uh, you know, when I worked with uh, DHS, when I was at the office of the director of national intelligence and, you know, oftentimes a hunt and peck approach to um, mission driven operations was, was what was employed many, many years ago. We simply don't have the time or the resources in order to uh, work in that uh, methodology any longer. And nor does anyone, any, anyone want to do that, right? Our world has changed. Our world has matured. And the things that we're using in our lives each and every day, we should be able to use in our work days as well. It's, it's interesting you mentioned crowdsourcing. Are you uh, leveraging crowdsourcing for your, your workforce or are you using it for uh, identifying security threats? How, how are you uh, using that uh, kind of a paradigm? Within the U.S. government, uh, crowdsourcing of the workforce is a very common and popular approach to figuring out problems that have to be addressed. So I would point to within DHS, we have some great examples such as uh, the Innovation Task Force um, and uh, the innovation efforts within the TSA, which have been very robust since 2007. They employed a crowdsourcing platform to gather workforce ideas um, and to bring them to life. I, I think we can look to other um, agencies such as NASA who do fantastic things with gathering their very creative and very 
hardworking, mission-focused workforce to, to figure out the problems that they need to solve. Um, we are just standing up our innovation hub. And so that is something that we're going to be doing in the coming fiscal year and are excited to take that on. I will say we have so many exciting um, ideas that are emerging from our workforce, but being able to make best use of a platform that really helps to enable prioritization, categorization, response um, in a way that makes sense is, is going to be really helpful. So uh, speaking of workforce, uh, we know that AI is going to dramatically change the workforce of the future. So how is uh, CISA thinking about uh, these changes and what, what are the steps you're taking? So I would say first and foremost, we all recognize that AI is the coming wave of the future. And there are many ways that we need to integrate that into both our mission, our mission support um, work that we do. Um, we are employing a, um, a great test of how we might be able to utilize AI through our human resources approach. Um, we're using it to, uh, with a very small test case, selectively uh, identify and um, uh, really find folks who would be applying for CISA jobs, folks that we would never come across otherwise. And so our ability to reach out to people who are um, new and different to government work um, has been really exciting. And I think it's an opportunity that we've seen not only resonates within um, with folks who are seeking jobs, but it also is filling very important needs within CISA. Um, to ensure that we have a really cutting edge skill set um, and, and we're identifying folks who normally would never consider a career in government, but now are able to really see the benefits and to be part of a, a government agency in, in a way they never would have previously. So that's really exciting. I do think... Um, We've talked about some of the challenges that we would experience in, in utilizing technologies. And I do want to emphasize the fact that, you know, I, I think we're all familiar with the fact that the government traditionally has had a challenge in being able to procure technologies quickly and to bring them in. Um, but I, I think we are doing some amazing things. The last several years has really changed the way in which procurement um, has taken place. And I'll point to uh, DHS specifically, we basically have a remarkable number of authorities that allow us to bring on uh, commercial technologies that we wouldn't have been able to access previously. Um, there are some very inventive and creative uh, procurement vehicles that we've been able to utilize. I'll highlight um, one called Commercial Solutions Opening Pilot Program, CSOP, and uh, DHS has a current solicitation that's um, on the street for COVID CSOP uh, proposals. And so we were able to, at CISA, to use that vehicle to bring on a technology called CREAS, uh, which supports our emergency communications division. Um, we, got, we were able to uh, find the technology from our colleagues at the Air Force Innovation Effort, AFWORKS. And um, we were able to utilize that vehicle and bring in, procure the technology in 18 days. And that is, I will say, record setting for us. And we're really excited to be able to make that happen. But most importantly, it shows that 
we can and we must be able to bring in commercial technologies in a way that benefits the mission and doesn't hamper and hang us up on, on the um, necessary, sometimes necessary evils of um, procurement that make it much more difficult, both for government as well as private sector. So that's a win I will take any day. Um, um, per my comments earlier uh, regarding those heroic efforts, there were a lot of heroic efforts that people across CISA uh, performed to uh, make sure that we were able to procure the technology. However, we're trying to look at the processes to figure out how do we turn this into a repeatable process for everyone. Well, that, that, that's wonderful. 18 days, uh, you, you're beating the corporate sector. Uh, oh. you know, they, they can procure anything in 18 days. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we'll take it when we can get it, right? So um, we know that um, cybersecurity itself is changing with AI. And, and so are you seeing any exciting innovations uh, when it comes to the in intersection of cybersecurity and AI? And are you... Uh, partnering with any companies uh, in, in the private sector to, to bring that to DHS? So I think we can definitely say that this uh, technology has changed the way in which we work. And I would say COVID has forced an even greater um, change than we ever could have possibly imagined just 10 short months ago. Um, and kudos to our our government agencies, kudos to our country, kudos to the globe for being able to basically pivot um, in, the, in a matter of a week. And I, I think we all see, even this, this podcast right here, right, is that you know, we're doing things we wouldn't have done uh, 10 months ago, and it had to have happened quickly. But I will say also, we have a significant number of folks in the USG workforce um, millennials and soon the post-millennials who, for them, they've never operated in a way that wasn't tied to technology, whether it be smartphones or the internet or social media. And so government must pivot to include that way of operating um, in a way that makes sense for what is the future workforce. And so I think we've all done a great job uh, to, to make that move quickly. However, I'll also say, I think there's a lot more that we're gonna have to do. We're just learning, right? We're, we're figuring out what works, what doesn't work. How does, this, um, how does this serve our mission? How do we achieve our goals? Um, I will say to CIS's credit, we literally did not miss a beat. Um, we're able to pick right back up. And we have a very small, um, percentage of our workforce that must be in a classified space in order to do our work, but the majority of CISA's work is unclassified. And so we were able to operate um, in a new environment very quickly. Um, I will say we our, our colleagues across the US government, particularly in the intelligence community and with our DOD partners who must work within classified spaces, I think they've had a harder time and being able to pivot with the rest of the world. Um, much of their work just simply has not been able to be translated in the same way. And we know that you know, the amount of money um, that would take and the time that it would take in order to enable uh, a, a 
ballooning of skiffs and classified spaces to do that work uh, across the country around the globe would be extraordinary and it's simply not possible. So I think they have a huge challenge um, that is a, a, a different type of challenge um, in figuring out how to uh, work within those classified spaces. I'm gonna take uh, a moment to invite my colleague, uh, Adam Wood to join the discussion. Thanks, Adam. Hi, Sabre, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing well. Um, so we were just talking about uh, the challenges associated with some of the personnel from the IC adapting to you know, this, new, uh, this, this new environment with COVID. Um, so focusing on the human capital aspects of, of that previous question, particularly as, as DHS continues to integrate its people into that environment surrounded by AI and emerging tech. Um, what do you see as those items that it, it must do uh, at the agency level in order to not only develop a technologically well-versed workforce, um, but also one that's properly skilled and, and placed and managed? Um, and what are the mission impacts uh, if these changes aren't addressed? And that's a great question. I would say, I mean, we have to ensure that we we really are doing what we need to do to ensure that we have a properly uh, trained um, and adequately uh, uh, prepared workforce, that we're hiring folks who bring in the adequate skills. Um, I think that is going to change over time, as I mentioned, you know, with the millennial and soon to be post-millennial workforce that is going to force changes upon us we won't be able to maintain the old ways of doing things. Clearly though, there's also a significant portion of our existing workforce who uh, operated in a different environment. And so we have to do what we can to keep them trained, identify what the skill sets are. We always look to um, the NIST's NICE uh, cyber framework to understand what are the uh, skill sets that are required for various jobs and how do we appropriately train and manage to those. But I, I do think, you know, again, the, the difference in um, our, the generations um, that we will have to modify, you know, expectations just, at, just as we're seeing right here, right? We've all had to move to a teleworking situation, which soon will become a this is now a remote workforce. That's what it looks like. And that's a, another transition that we haven't really, um, that is just beginning to roll out um, because we, we understand that these are uh, longer term uh, situations than any of us actually anticipated. <clears throat> and there are a lot of benefits to it, right? I'm able to be a lot more productive and I can tell you, I wouldn't have been in the office at 3.30, but I was able to come to this office at 3.30 today. So um, we're able to get a lot more done, right? Yeah. So do you think, I mean, uh, we understand where, where we are with, um, you know, the trajectory on, on vaccines and, and therapeutics and things like that. So do you think that uh, telework is not transitory in nature? No, I think we, I think that we have to be able to do our work anywhere. And I think technology is enabling us to do that. So um, I know I could have given a, you know, a good hit back the nice softball and hear all the great things this is doing, which again, I so salute what it is that we've 
um, been able to, to accomplish so quickly. But I would like it to turn it back to your listeners and viewers and say that this is a real opportunity, I think, for all of us to look at, okay, where are we and what tools do we have in order to communicate, to collaborate, to build upon those partnerships, to really create that information sharing. And I think by necessity, we all were able to quickly pivot because we had existing tools that had capabilities that enabled information sharing or collaboration or common whiteboarding, right? Um, but they might not have been ideal in terms of the solutions, but they were able to be employed immediately. So I think now we have the opportunity to really look at, okay, what do we have? What tools do we have? We've got Zoom, we've got Miro, we've got Jitsi, we've got WebEx, we've got Teams, we've got all these different capabilities, but how do we really look at the user experience? How do we really take into account uh, design thinking in a way that would help us really understand and move forward what we've got to work with. I think we've all seen, and it's painful to watch, right? So our, our competence, our collective competence with these tools, it's a public experience and it is painful to watch um, because, you know, oftentimes you're having to learn in real time a new tool that you've never learned previously. Um, certainly, uh, the catchphrase of 2020 is, can you hear me? Uh, because we have so many problems with ensuring that our technology is working or that our agencies have the bandwidth in order to manage that communication or the whiteboarding session or whatever it is. So I think we have, we have to lower the barriers of entry for uh, technologies that are working, helping us work virtually. Uh, whether it be whiteboarding or information sharing or communication, we have to do more to train people uh, so they can uh, feel comfortable in using these tools. We have to make them much more user friendly so that people can uh, move from one platform to another, depending on who it is that they're communicating with. And I think we really have to work on understanding what the cultural mores, mores are and how we really deal with the fact that, okay, am I going to turn on my camera during this conversation or is it okay for me to be not camera ready um, and deal with the shower later in the day? So I think there are all these ways of interacting that we haven't really gotten used to and we don't have, um, you certainly don't have uh, formal processes, much less informal processes. And I think that the societal norms surrounding the the, the personnel activity uh, being actively engaged um, has certainly changed. And I think that, you know, given, <clears throat> given where we are, I think everybody needs to be a bit more empathetic to people's situations. Cybersecurity threats are real. Uh, as we look at the global landscape, you've got uh, various national actors trying to engage with the U.S. and, uh, and, and you know, your agency is doing a, a, a splendid job uh, in in, in uh, preventing these actors from being successful, how do you think about balancing such threats with the uh, privacy concerns and those kind of narratives that you also uh, you know are, are important? Well, I that's a, a great question. Something that um, we dealt with when I was at the office of director of national intelligence, um, we quickly learned that you know. It's not a balance of security and privacy. Both are important. 
And how do we ensure that we're enabling um, both of those uh, at the same time? And so um, I think our common understanding as a nation um, is maturing. Um, I think there's always a higher, um, higher degree uh, required for government to ensure that they're keeping the highest standards um, possible and protecting our uh, citizens in the way that we know they need to be protected. Um, and so I think you know, having open discussions about what privacy tools exist, about what privacy exists on social media, on tools that are being utilized. I know we've all been thrust into a, um, with the challenge of dealing with uh, working uh, online and virtually, you know, we've all had to face the issues of, you know, how do we keep safe and how do we do what we need to do to protect um, our nation's secrets um, and even information that shouldn't be uh, made public um, how do we make sure that we're doing what is right to um, keep things safe? So when we think of operational readiness, um, AI is playing an important role on the military side. How, how are you leveraging AI or scaling it across DHS? Right. So I think you know, across DHS, I mean, that's a very operational uh CISA is the eighth uh, component, uh, operational component within DHS. And our mission is very different and our structure is very different uh, from many of the other component agencies such as FEMA, our TSA, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, the Secret Service, the Coast Guard, things of that sort, who by definition are um, ensuring that they're dealing with operational challenges each and every day. And so, um, they definitely have to figure out how to utilize AI in order to enable their missions. Um, for CISA, our role is primarily to ensure that the owners and operators of critical infrastructure understand the cyber and physical threats that face them and how they might mitigate those threats. And so we're about communicating with our um, with our, the stakeholders that we have and that we are understanding what their challenges are in terms of the technology that they're working with. However, I think there's a lot of opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, in regards to the mission support aspects of what it is that CISA does. How do we do a better job of utilizing technology to enable faster, quicker, better um, hiring practices, or how do we work within our financial structures, our budgeting, our contracting, things of that sort to make best use of technology, or even the infrastructure that CISA has itself. How do we um, really ensure that we are keeping nimble and fresh to enable um, every technical advantage that we need to have available at our fingertips? So when we think of uh, leveraging some of the latest advancements in technology, the idea of workforce development takes center stage. It's essential if you're going to be successful. So how are you upskilling your current employees or, or thinking about that? That's right. So there are, I, I will say, um, having come from private sector and then going into the government, I will say the government really does do a phenomenal job of identifying uh, necessary skill sets, 
uh, providing training, understanding um, training needs across uh, the U.S. government. It's, it is truly remarkable um, the amount of training that is available. I think the challenge is, is how do we really stay on the cutting edge and recognize what it is that is taking place in the commercial sector and how do we stay on top of that? So again, finding uh, skill sets when uh, we're hiring our workforce and then quickly understanding what uh, skill sets are required and how do we train folks to best meet those challenges. Absolutely fundamental to uh, ensuring that we're staying ahead of the curve. Any, any parting words for our audience? You know, I, I, I definitely want to emphasize the fact that I think part of what it is that we're going to have to be working on in the future is uh, curating data uh, more effectively and ensuring, you know, to enable the technologies that are coming and that we'll be using in the future. I'm, I'm very proud of CISA, uh, just appointed uh, chief data officer, and I'm excited about what will come uh, with his work. But I think we're seeing just overall, it's the how do we ensure the security of the data that we have? Um, and that really is an extension of the mission that we have at hand. Um, and it's our job to ensure that we're doing right, not only by uh, stakeholders of critical infrastructure, but also by our mission as well. Thank you very much, uh, Sabra. This has been such a pleasure. That's great, Harpreet. Thanks. I've been pleased to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.